Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. When my mother was 12, she saw the Beatles play at the recently built Atlanta Stadium, the future home of the Atlanta Braves, who at the time were completing their final season as Milwaukeeans. Fun fact about this particular show, it was actually the first time the Beatles ever played with stage monitors, which I imagine would have been the first time in a good while that the band was able to actually hear themselves over the cacophony of screaming girls. Growing up in a household with two huge Beatle fans, my stepdad being the other, this concert became a bit of legend within my family. And when I think about it, it is kind of amazing that she actually got to see them live. Because frankly, it's kind of amazing that that band even existed in the first place, considering how they were first presented to me. I mean, as early as I can remember... The Beatles had always held this mythical status in my mind, and the fact that my parents got to experience this band in real time always made me a little jealous of them. They had become fans from the moment the Beatles became part of the public consciousness and remained devoted throughout the band's entire existence. The level at which my parents' minds were probably blown on a regular basis by their favorite band as it was actually happening was something that I, as a music fan, had yet to really experience. Sure, my mind had often been blown, but a lot of the times it was always after the fact. All my favorite bands and artists by the time I had become an obsessive had either already broken up or were well into their careers. Pavement literally became my favorite band during the same year in which they broke up. Dylan had released Blonde on Blonde years before the idea of me even existed. I had this perpetual feeling of always being late to the party, which isn't necessarily a terrible thing. I definitely think there are benefits to being able to just dive into a large and available body of work. But also, I'm not sure there's that same sense of ownership one feels from being there from the very beginning. One day during the second semester of my freshman year of college, I happened to be watching MTV in my dorm room, and a short segment from MTV News called You Hear It First came on. It was about this band from New York City named The Walkmen, and the segment piqued my interest enough to where I ended up going onto their website to do some further investigating. And I think what actually sold me on the band was the fact that they carried an actual upright piano to gigs and the band had an organist, not a keyboardist, but specifically an organist. So I decided to order myself a copy of their recently released debut record, Everyone Who Pretends to Like Me is Gone. And honestly, at first, I didn't really know what to make of it. But like so many of the great loves of my life, it grew on me and I became a fan. With each subsequent release, my love for their music would continue to grow and would fully blossom during the period between 100 Miles Off and You and Me. That's when they became my band, and I finally got to have that experience of my favorite band blowing my mind in real time. 
So as you can probably imagine, considering how much this band meant to me, I was pretty blue when they announced in 2013 that they would be going on an extreme hiatus. But as much as I've missed my beloved Walkman, the loss has not been without its benefits when one considers how consistent and great all the post-Walkman material has actually been. And the Walkman, whose solo work has perhaps resonated with me the most since their time away, has been the great Walter Martin. His work always seems to come during times in which I've needed it the most. The Walkman came into my life when I was 19, on the precipice of adulthood, and Martin's solo work came as I entered my 30s. After I had become a husband, a parent, established a career, and essentially became a responsible adult. And as I inch closer and closer to middle age, Martin's has been that relatable voice that I've often turned to for comfort. So when Martin announced earlier this year that he would be releasing a new record titled The Bear in March, the last year of my 30s, I just knew in my heart that it'd be a record for me. And when I was finally able to get my hands on it, I put it on, and I listened. This is the story of that record. My name is Walter Martin. I am a songwriter from Washington, D.C., and I played in uh, rock bands my whole life, basically. The donkey is a-drinking all the moonlight from the water While the angel and the ox and the fox Take a wander through the world at night mm. The world at night mm. The sleepy truck driver parked his truck down beside the little hill near the mill where the road's a little wider in the world at night mm. the world at night mm. uh, since 2014 i've made music on my own and albums on my own and various other things uh, and yeah, my new record is called The Bear, and on The Bear, I, I wrote all the songs, and I, basically I, I sing and, uh, and play guitar and some other doodads. Walter Martin would spend the entirety of his childhood in Washington, D.C., and it is through his family that he would be exposed to music at an early age. You know, it's the only place I grew up. To me, it just seemed like where I grew up. It's a great city, especially after I left. I came to, I, I think from a distance, it's easier to appreciate it. I mean, just how beautiful it is and how green it is and how, uh, you know, there's a lot of great things about D.C. My mother grew up there because her parents lived there and I just one of those things. It's just, where, it's just where we lived. My mother played piano and her, her mother uh, was a, uh, like a piano teacher and she, she sang and she, uh, she actually ended up being uh, the music teacher at where I went to elementary school, though she died before I was born. But yeah, so my mother's side is very musical. So there was always a piano in the house and there was always music. My mom loved like folk music and she still does. She's still alive. She loves, uh, you know, Bob Dylan and the Beatles. And my, my dad is big, big, like uh, rock and roll, like whatever, Ray Charles kind of guy. I remember really loving uh, music when I was like 
probably around the age that my daughters are now. My daughters are in third and fourth grade, but I think of like third grade being a big year for me getting into music. I liked, you know, like just pop radio. I really got into it and started like really identifying with it. Uh, I got into like Men at Work and like Laura Branigan and people like that, you know, like Gloria and stuff like that. And like Men Without Hats, whatever, just like pop radio. And uh, got like, I, I just looking back, I, I definitely was very obsessive about it in the way that I have always been about music. Um, so I think it was around then that I really started getting into it. It is while attending St. Albans School in Washington, D.C., that Martin would begin playing music with some of his classmates, eventually learning to play a variety of instruments. I did piano when I was really little, when I was like in first, second, third grade. I, I just didn't love it. It didn't work for me. Like, it didn't take. Uh, and then, you know, in the fifth grade, I, my friend Stuart, who ended up being the singer for Jonathan Fire Eater, uh, we ended up doing guitar lessons together. That's when we started getting into rock and roll and started like thinking we were cool and started like listening to like cool, uh, whatever. Like we listened to like Black Flag and stuff like that. And like, uh, whatever, like Minor Threat. You know, um, more because we liked, I think, the names and stuff, the names of the bands, and we liked, like, writing it on our shoes, and it felt, like, sort of rebellious. So, like, that's when we started playing. Yeah, but that's when we started. We liked The Clash and, like, stuff like that. So we, we started playing for, you know, started playing, taking guitar lessons in fifth grade. But we couldn't really play. In sixth grade, we could sort of play somewhat. And we started playing at, like, school dances and stuff like that. You know, I think when you start that young, being in a rock band, and you're, you're self-taught, and I already knew how to play piano a tiny bit, you know, and I and I sort of learned how to play guitar. And then, like, you know, I was like in band practice my whole life. So you end up sitting behind the drums and you figure out how to do all the stuff. You know, it's not with with like the basic rock and roll instruments. Like, if you're around it enough, like most people who are in bands for that long, you you kind of know how to play everything. I'm never like a master of any. You know, never. I'm not like a real virtuoso on any instrument just sort of being good at, at all of them or being competent at all of them i started playing the organ like uh i don't know in in maybe 10th grade or something or ninth grade that became my full-time role in the band uh in our high school band i played drums in another band in like a prom band kind of thing but in like the serious band which had the walkman guys and, and jonathan fire Eater guys and it had matt and paul in it uh, and Stuart from Jonathan Fire Yeah, I started playing organ, and I think it was like I was playing like a like a really cheesy synthesizer. And then then we got into Tom Waits. I guess like in tenth grade, Paul Maroon, who's the guitar player in the Walkman, he was like Tom Waits plays these organs called Farfisas because it was listed on the back of Frank's Wild Ears. And I was like, wow, I bet that's fucking, it has that incredible sound on, on whatever telephone call from Istanbul, the, the Tom Waits song on Frank's wild ears. And I heard that sound. I was like, that's the best fucking sound I've ever heard in my entire life. So I, I, uh, I ended up getting obsessed with, with combo organs and played them. Yeah. I played them all through, through that end of that high school band. And, uh, yeah. And then all through fire eater and then the Walkman. Martin would begin to experiment with songwriting in his middle and high school band, The Ignobles, but would really begin to devote himself to the craft once the band morphed into Jonathan Fire Eater. I started wanting to write songs pretty early when we were doing it. I wrote stuff throughout. I would go through phases of not writing much stuff. Like in their ska period, I remember I was just like pumping out the ska songs. 
And I don't think I wrote very many funk songs during our funk period. But then, yeah, before Fire Eater started, I had gone up to college in Colorado. I thought I didn't really want to do the band anymore. And then I realized about a week after being there, I was like, what the fuck am I doing here? I want to do the band. Uh, so I, I planned my escape uh, to come back to New York after whatever a semester. Decided that if I went back, I really wanted to be writing songs. Um, so I started writing a lot when I was in Colorado and, and figuring out whatever riffs and cool guitar things that I liked and drum things that I liked uh, and sort of brought them back. And we, we used some of those songs for our early Fire Eater stuff. From then on, I was always just writing stuff. I didn't really write lyrics till you know until Walkman. During Fire Reader, I never even thought about lyrics. You know, I, I was all about like the riff, like the groove and the riff and like the, the, the attitude, I guess. I, you know, like I just wanted it to be cool. Yeah, Stuart would do it did all the words, you know. He didn't need help with the words. Jonathan Fireeater would go on to play a major role in the revitalization of New York City's music scene. And following the release of their Tremble Under Boomlights EP in 1996, the band would begin to receive a considerable amount of attention, eventually signing with the major label DreamWorks Records in 1997. Later that same year, the band would release their major label debut, Wolf Songs for Lambs, before officially disbanding in the summer of 1998. Following the breakup, Martin, along with his Fire Eater bandmates Matt Barrick and Paul Maroon, would form the Walkmen with Peter Bauer and Martin's cousin, Hamilton Lighthouser. As he had with his previous bands, Martin would contribute to the songwriting, and as the band progressed, he would also begin to provide lyrical contributions. You know, I contributed a lot of like titles. I always loved making up titles and stuff like that. So I did like all like our out like everyone who pretended to like be a Dawn, like Bows and Air. I just like titles. So I would make up our album titles and I would make up like song titles. 
to superimpose over top of Ham's lyrics, just to I don't know, give him a, give it a different sort of angle. Uh, and then I guess during our hundred miles off period, which is sort of our, our whatever, our like transitional period, that's when we were sort of experimenting a lot. And I started trying to write words then. I just remember Ham coming to me and being like, hey, "Will you just help me write words? Like I know you can write because I had another band going with my friend Mylan and." Uh, and so I was writing words, you know, I was writing songs of my own. I mean, it was a very sort of casual, it was more just like friends screwing around. But I did put together songs, uh, you know, I did write words. So, uh, yeah, so I just started writing words with him. And, uh, you know, and I, then I got really into it. You know, I was like, I guess it's because it was just good timing for me. It was right when I was getting older, you know, it was like, that record came out in, it was like the time I was getting married, you know, and I started feeling more like an adult. And I was like, you know, the, I guess the the big banger like riffs and drum beats that I had been so obsessed with before. I guess they had kind of run aground, and I was a little bit more, I guess, looking for something that I could be working on creatively that that felt a little like whatever, more mature or like richer or more like emotional, or those kinds of things. I think I was wanting to do that, and I I think I realized pretty quickly that lyric writing can really go directly to that i was like okay this feels very exciting to write words i mean yeah like the lyrics i like that i wrote are on you and me and, and lisbon and i like some of the ones on heaven i like that one like southern heart it's called i wrote that about like my family from kentucky you know i i really like those lyrics actually um i, I sort of wrote this the slow whatever like stranded and stuff like that and like juvenile like sort of the slower stuff and like you know whatever while i shovel the snow I like those. I'm most proud of those, I think. Well, they say can't please everyone But I'm stuck on a winning streak Well, today there's clarity And tonight I see tomorrow All at once, the winners hit all the lie I've frozen over. As I look in back of me, see a shade beside the walkway. That was a nice step for us because that song, I don't know, it just felt different. It felt like just the sort of the swingy, quiet nature of it felt, it felt really nice for a band that had been playing The Rat, whatever, two years before that we were doing this. And we loved playing that song and like surprising people, you know? We'd be playing at like a frat party or something. Not a frat party, but whatever. Something that had frat party energy. And then you play that song, people were like, and we had like a triangle going. People were like, what the fuck is this? But it was, it was, it was, it was fun for us. The Walkman would release Heaven in the summer of 2012 and would tour in promotion of the record throughout the rest of the year and into the next. In December of 2013, the band would make the announcement that they would be going on an extended hiatus. The Walkman are a band that like, I think people know somewhat, like people follow music know somewhat, and like they think that we were like successful, and I guess we were successful in ways, but you know, we were all, we literally all were struggling the whole time. There was never like a, okay, we're just kicking butt, we're we're selling out every show. We're selling lots of records. We're do you know we have five 
people supporting five families in New York. It's just, it's hard, you know, and it was, and it was, we never were able to say like no to anything. So we could never make like the cool decision. We always had to like get paid so we could support ourselves. It was just, it was a struggle, you know? And so eventually we were like, it's just, we we're every people are having kids. I, I, I hadn't had a kid yet, but uh, we we're, it, you know, we we're all married. We we're like, we can't be go just going out like touring around in this van, and like our wives are at home and our children. Like this is crazy. We're not like in a fucking high school anymore. Um, so we um, we made a big push with the Heaven record to try to like, you know, honestly, just to, like to try to be to try to get more people to try to make more accessible music to try to like do that in a creative way. You know, like that song Heaven was very deliberately like. This is let's make a song that people will like. Um, I actually I actually like that song. I, I, I'm, I'm proud of that song. But um, but there's a lot of crap on that record. I did. That I just really don't like Phil Eck produce who produced the Fleet Foxes and who's now a friend. We're like, OK, let's make a record that people will like. Then we'll, you know, see what happens. Uh, and, you know, people liked it, but it didn't do that much. And we we're like, let's, we just can't do this anymore. This is just too exhausting. And I think. Well, I think the writing process was less fun. It was definitely less fun. Everything about it was less fun. Touring was not fun. Touring was hell at that point. Uh, and and the writing was was not as fun as it had been before. We're all separate, all in separate cities. Ham and I were the only people in New York. It was just kind of hard. So we were like, let's just not do it anymore. And everybody, we're all like, yeah, let's just not do it anymore because it's just, you know, it's, it's run its course. For his first post-Walkman project, Martin decides to make a children's record, releasing We're All Young Together in May of 2014. And the old man taps his shoe Music's like shampoo I need it every morning Yes, I do And we're all young together And we're all young together Featuring a number of notable guest appearances, including the Nationals' Matt Berninger, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs' Karen O. and Nick Zinner, and clap your hands, say yes, Alec Onsworth. The album would be met with critical acclaim and go on to receive a Parents Choice Silver Award. I started working on that before we split. You know, like Ham and I had a studio in Brooklyn, and you know, we started going in separately. Some I, I don't know. I just started recording stuff on my own. I had like a bunch of like little. You know, I used to write like sort of. I, I guess sort of the style of songs that are on my first couple of solo records. I used to just write stuff that just came out of me naturally like that, just to generate lyrics, you know, just so I could have like a boogie beat on something, just to generate lyrics for the Walkman. And it really helped me generate a lot of lyrics. But I also really liked writing stuff like that. I don't know, I just somehow I, I, I started working on stuff that became like, like the We're All Young Together song. I just like wrote that song. I don't, honestly don't know where it came from. I guess after I had the We're All Young Together song, I had the idea. It was a combination of not wanting to make a solo record and not having the nerve to i think it was mostly not having the nerve to that i was like you know what i'll just make a kid's record i'll call it a kid's record that way i'm not competing with regular 
people, it was regular rock and roll, cool people, and like Pitchfork won't won't pay attention to me, and I'll be in a totally different lane. You know, Anna could be so creative. You know, I love like whatever '50s rock, and I love like you know Pee Wee's Big Adventure, and like uh, you know stuff like that. And I was like, I'm gonna do it like that. I'm gonna make have a sort of like a whatever rock and roll kind of edge to it. And I'm not gonna talk about like tying your shoes. It's gonna be like just sort of my fantasy kids record uh, that I would want to hear. Uh, and so yeah, and then I just totally fell in love with the idea, and uh, and just started obsessively making it. I've always really kind of disliked music that tries to be funny, you know, and but I felt kind of like, I don't know, to me, it just felt natural. And like, I was like, uh, I decided to sort of follow whatever, whatever weirder impulses I had that felt, felt embarrassing or something that felt like that just felt a little bit more, you know, more like me, I guess, you know, it, it's just like a process you go through when you're in a band for your whole life. And creatively, everything you do is is a collaboration. Uh, it's it's finding your own voice and your own like identity, especially in lyric writing. And if you're going to be singing it, and you're not like a very good singer, I think I got really lucky in thinking of the kids kid record idea because it was just sort of a a way of easing me into it, or a way of like tricking me into writing emotional lyrics w- without having to worry about like being corny or something. The release of We're All Young Together would also mark the beginning of Martin's consistent release schedule of new material, alternating between records intended for children and those written with a more adult audience in mind. Based in New York City since the early 90s, Martin and his family decide to move to upstate New York in 2020, and it is in this new environment, which would include a 19th century old schoolhouse that he would use for his studio, that Martin would begin to work on the songs that would make up his next record. We've been thinking about it. My wife's whole family is up here, and we were sort of in a funny spot with our house that we were doing some work on, and we weren't able to live there. And it was just kind of a... We were living at my wife's grandfather's house on Staten Island, which Staten Island is sort of a, not the greatest place to live, especially if you're working in Brooklyn. Where I was, My studio was in Brooklyn. School was in Brooklyn. It was just kind of rough, and it was went dragging on for like a year. And then the pandemic hit, and then we decided that maybe this was our cue to uh, to try to try leaving the city, you know, which we my wife grew up in the city. I'd lived there for whatever, 25 years. Um, so, yeah, was, we just decided to do it, you know, for a long time, like like during the pandemic, I was doing like a lot of commercial stuff, like early pandemic, doing a lot of commercial stuff. Uh, and that lasted through the summer. But the whole time I was trying to figure out like what I wanted to make, uh, you know, and it, I had like these funny songs. I was like, maybe I could make a like a really funny record. And, but I don't know. It's really hard to make a like to, when you decide you're going to make a funny song. It's basically impossible to make a funny song. So I was like, I love the idea of making a funny record, but I just had two funny songs, and, uh, and I, anyway, I, I couldn't write anymore. I just literally could not. And you know, I think my brain had been kind of wired for the commercial thing for a little while, where everything, every second, has to be something new and every it has to be just totally appealing and bright and you know that kind of stuff i I love doing that kind of stuff but um uh it's not necessarily what i like listen to or that passionate about so i guess i just wanted to try to do the opposite so or allow myself to do the opposite so i started just writing stuff that i thought people wouldn't like you know or that like i guess i was drawn to the idea for like really long tons of lyric kind of thing with not that many choruses. I don't know. I just wanted it to be simple, 
like long narrative lyric kind of things. But I was like, I didn't have anything. But the first song I wrote was that song called Baseball Diamonds. And when I wrote that, which I I had the guitar part for for a while, that whole thing, which I put together like at the beginning of the pandemic. But so, but then I didn't have words. So anyway, I wrote the words very quickly um, uh, one morning when I just kind of got lucky. And then I was like, then I loved it. I was like, oh, this I love this. It was slower before too, and it was longer. But I was like, okay, th- this is the kind of music I want to do. This is what I want the record to be. I want it to be very long and lyrically and narrative, and uh, and no frills, basically. Um, sort of the opposite of the commercial stuff that I had been doing. I guess I had a lot of musical parts lying around that um, once I sort of stumbled upon like the lyric sort of tone, I guess, that I had a lot of music to work with so I could sort of start plugging things in. Yeah, I guess October, November, December, January, uh, wrote a lot of stuff and, and got, you know, most most of the record written. I was only voice memos. I was working in my studio, which, which where I am now, which is now finished. But at the time, it was just a table. And uh, I could only have my shitty guitar out here because it would freeze at night. Um, so I, it was just voice memos. I was just doing guitar and singing, just, uh, just lyric and, and chords or guitar parts. For the bear, Martin records part of the album at his home, deciding to work with a limited palette in order to create a consistency to the record's overall sound. My studio where I am now, which, which is where I work now, like I say, I wrote everything up here just with a guitar and when there was nothing in here. But when I came time to record which I started doing, I guess, in April, May, maybe. Um, this place is under construction. So I set up in our living room, in our back living room. There's sort of a door so I could have some privacy. So I just set up back there. You know, it, it was good to be so limited. I really just wanted the songs to sort of have the same sound on all of them. I wanted it to be very, whatever, have continuity. I have this one guitar that I really love. It's a guitar sound I've used before. It's like the sound I use on couple other songs just like finger picking low strings on this electric guitar it's like a 1953 gretsch electromatic so i have that with like flat wound strings and just i just play it and i have like a vibrolux fender vibrolux like black bass so it's just that with no pedals or anything it almost sounds like a bit you know it's like very muted kind of sound yeah i've used it before i use it like on my uh reminisce bar and grill record i've used it like on a bunch of records. And I was like, I'm just going to do a whole record with that as the backdrop. So for some reason, I just make up guitar parts in that style that I like. So I just was like, I'm just going to do that. So yeah, I just set that up and I did all of my, I just sort of did all the arrangements of the songs with, with that and, and, and just was able to really nail down all the lyrics just going over and over and over them. Um, you know, in the process of doing that, I got basically all the, rec- all the recordings of my parts. I mean, I just, rec- you know, I record pretty straight. I have old microphones that I record just pretty straight, you know, like just straight into like a, like an old preamp. Then I go straight into a computer. And so it's pretty simple, like basic setup, you know, everything apart from the computer is pretty old school. Eventually, Martin would travel to Los Angeles to work on the record with musician and engineer Sean O'Brien at Knob World Studio. Matt Burningham from The National made a solo record, and I co-wrote some songs with him. And when we recorded, his engineer, this guy Sean, who I now is my buddy, um, we sort of hit it off. And I so I and I love his his style, and and he also plays beautiful lap steel. So I went out there to record with him, 
and got this guy, Emil Moseri, who's like a composer. He, he did the soundtrack for the movie Minari. It's really good. It's excellent. It came out last year. It was up for an Academy Award and something like that. It's about a, a Korean family that moves to Arkansas. It's excellent. I, I can't recommend it more. Anyway, when I saw it, I was like, that music is just so fucking good. Uh, and so I looked the guy up and I figured out through social media that we had friends in common. So I wrote to him and we started sort of writing to each other. Then when, like a few days before I went to L.A., I, I was like, I'm going to be in L.A. recording. Would you ever want to come play piano? And he said that he would. He said he never does that kind of thing, but he would. He would. So I sent him songs and he was very excited and, and so gracious. And we're buddies, too, now. I really, he's the coolest guy ever. Yeah, he came and played on like every song. He, he prepared everything. He had all the parts worked out. He was amazing. I didn't tell him a single note. He had stuff prepared for basically every song and he would play through it one time while Sean and I sat in the other room and I would be like, that's fucking great. And he's like, okay, cool. He's like, should I do it again? I'm like, yeah, I guess so. Sure. If you want. So then he would like do it again. I'd be like, that's fucking great. <laughs> and then he basically did that for every song. And it was, it was wonderful. Uh, yeah. Harrison Whitford was out there too. He played on the Matt Berninger record. He like plays with Stevie Bridgers. I had done a thing with with them, and uh, and and always really liked him. He's a, such a great guitar player. But uh, he was great and the coolest guy. Uh, so he came and played. Yeah, he plays on almost all the songs too. I think. And in the end, they made a record. Tommy, I'm so far away up in these hills The tall trees sway as hunters haul their fallen prey And the snow falls on the lane And I'm shivering once again Somehow, my friend, I fell asleep And tied my ankles in my sheets Awoke so slow to snow so deep No, but I can't run away to my horses and my sleigh Oh, now I know I'm home Yes, now I know I'm home The Bear opens with an evocation of winter in the track Hunters in the Snow, one of a number of songs by Martin in which the lyrical inspiration is drawn from his fascination with art. Featuring Eric Johnson of Fruit Bats and Bonnie Light Horseman assisting on the vocal duties, the song gradually unfolds around the anchor of Martin's finger-picked electric guitar as subtle touches of percussion, droning organ, and a cascade of ethereal piano notes cover the sonic landscape. The combination of this with the vivid imagery contained within the track's lyrics acts as the perfect introduction to the sights and sounds of this record, expertly setting the tone and giving its listeners the guide map for what's to come.
that's kind of why I wanted it to be first. You know, I like it definitely lays out the palette. I mean, that's sort of the template for the record is that is that song, and and um, yeah, I think it kind of gives a sense of place. You know, I, and I like how it takes its time and it's very lyricy and it's a little. I think there's a lot going on in the lyric and. Yeah, I felt like it was just a nice war of introduction. I really like how the the music came together on that one. Yeah, that one that that's the second one that I wrote for the record, uh, and it was very much like it was very snowy when I wrote it. And uh, yeah, that's like a Bruegel painting. You know that famous Bruegel painting, uh, "Hunters in the Snow." It's a, that like it's a beautiful painting. So, and I I had that at my desk, and I was just I I don't know. That's just sort of how the I guess it's a very pretty visual song. That's how it all came together. Art was a big thing in our family. You know, there was always art all over the walls, and like we always went to the museums. And but both of my parents, I guess particularly my mom, um, but both of them really were are, are very, you know, into art. And you know, we so it was kind of rammed down my throat. I think I understand, or at least I feel like the emotional connection to it in the same way that I do with music. And and I I think I don't understand it as well. As I understand music, like my my brain doesn't understand it as well. So for me, it's more just like a a pure emotional connection. So I think I like going back to that and sort of whatever, writing about that or accessing that in some way or something. But it's definitely, uh, and I have art all over my studio and like people send me art. I just have like, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely like a source of like of, of a lot of, you know, happiness and a lot of great things in my life. But it's also a source of like, inspiration for songs for sure. I think that I'm definitely drawn to things that are sort of have durable quality to them. You know, I'd rather sing about like whatever a tree than to sing about like you know like your your internet connection or something. You know. <laughs> In the brief instrumental first voices. Martin and his collaborators convey the same sense of place and emotion present within the previous number, yet accomplish this all without the benefit of words. It's a track very much in the same vein of interludes appearing on previous efforts, such as Pink Piano from 2018's Reminisce Bar and Grill and French Bells from 2020's Common Prayers. Like in a such a lyric-driven record, I just wanted to have some breathers in there. To me, it makes the whole thing feel like more of a story to have interludes. So I just, uh, I also wanted to just to establish that we're we're taking our time here. There no, there's not going to be any uh, too many fireworks. Um, and I just thought that was a pretty little, little do that. I was putting the new green beside a deep, deep yellow, the deep, deep yellow I'd mixed up all night before. And to my surprise, through squinted eyes, I saw my brother there and he was 25. So I'll do one for him, I want to go home too. The yellow is the yellow of our sister's room. But in the sober winter morning, I have an old man's eyes and there's no surprise. In the new green This ain't how I wanted things to be So I keep the mistake Following first voices is the sparse number new green 
which is still in keeping with the sound established on the previous tracks, but also brings in a tinge of wistfulness. So rich and so deep Like a purple sky wrapped around a big old tree And I want to tell him But he's not listening Cause I want to know where he has been Just don't tell no one My heart is broken too I just hide it in my shoe That I'm better than you and the new that one is yeah that's like probably my favorite one that's just sort of like you know very much uses the same palette as everything else that's just sort of like about my family growing up and about you know i guess it's just sort of a sort of sad song but very very love filled is, is, is the way i guess i think of it i don't know if people are going to know what i'm talking about in it but like i'm just hoping there's enough enough feeling in it that you can sort of relate to the to the feeling of it that's definitely one of the most more personal songs i've ever written so it's a little hard to it's a little hard to talk about it i guess but it's hard to i guess it's hard to explain it's hard to talk about the words it's hard to explain there's no point in explaining you know it's just like it sort of does does what it does and i and i i, I like what it does he'll always be a better man than i Yes, he will always be a better man than I. The old French drains and broke the clock. Now the tick-tock stops when the red bird pulls the chain. And me, I'm locked inside today. Watch another baseball game. The pitcher to the catcher to the pitcher and back again. The sun burns. Baseball Diamonds is yet another track from the album, in which Martin demonstrates his gift for evocative imagery, as well as his skills as an arranger. The individual moving parts within the song, the steady finger-picked guitar pattern, the atypical bass lines, and perhaps the record's MVP, Emil Mosseri's glistening piano, all occupy their own distinct space, until the song's final moments in which everything falls in together and is led by beautiful and understated lap steel provided by engineer Sean O'Brien. Until I started getting serious about music, I was very serious about baseball. So I actually did used to be a pitcher, and uh, yeah, that was sort of my my life until I was whatever, like 11 or 12. So I do, yes, have a history of baseball, and I still have a real love. I mean, I don't I don't follow it or watch baseball or think about it at all anymore, but I, I'll always feel a connection to baseball from my childhood. And like I said before, that's the first song I wrote for the record, and um, I wrote it really fast. I mean, it took, I always write really fast, and I go back and edit it for ever, but. Um, 
Yeah, that one is like, I don't know how, how you describe it. It's, it's sort of just about fa- my family here and about like it's sort of a slice of life kind of song, I guess. Or it's sort of like talking about a particular morning and then sort of things going on in your head while you're doing something. And, you know, a lot of things, I, a lot of family stuff in there. And then, then, then I talk about like going on tour and like flipping over our car and it was like a fire eater tour and I was driving and we, we hit ice and like flipped over our car. And I mean, everybody was fine, but it was, it was just like one of those scary things. I did put a lot of thought into the bass on the whole record. I want, and I kind of wanted the bass to be a similar style on all the songs. I guess it's because the, the guitar is doing a lot of the work of holding down the low end and, and rooting. You know, you, I could take the bass out a lot of the songs. You wouldn't even notice, probably. I mean, the song could still do its thing. So I just wanted the bass, that low frequency stuff. If I was going to put it on there, I wanted it to be, I guess, expressive. I didn't want it to just be playing the like the root note. Yeah, it does a lot of weird stuff. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't really root. It, I guess it starts to root the, the chords at the end. It's, there's a lot of verses, so I felt like I needed to somehow keep it interesting and stay away from the the root i guess on the bass is always uh it's always nice if you can get away with staying away from it shadows as she walks her lonely way through the backyard beehives and woodpile she goes looking for her long lost children or at least that's what they say so I sit here at my window where I dream someday she'll pass I see the rhododendrons I planted and I think how time moves so fast Like the moonlight and the electric light projecting paisley patterns on the grass And I look down at the scar on my hand And I remember the first time I got drunk And I think of my best friend back then I slept with my girlfriend, that punk And I don't know, no, I don't know Where my memories should go Good and the bad, I cherish them so The album's title track is a rumination on memories filtered through Martin's unique voice as a storyteller using humor and poignancy to express an overall message of hope. 
Well, I had a dream that I was in a mid-level rock and roll band Played every shithole nightclub across this whole entire land When I woke up, I was glad to see that I had left that life behind But by then I was bald, broke, and 39 It wasn't exactly my plan, no, no, no the record used to be called, it was called a few things uh, that were more about like family and more like a what it's about. I, I don't know. The, but then um, then I had the song The Bear and well, I, I had The Bear for so long and I couldn't finish it. I had all sorts of stuff going on. I had, it was like 15 minutes at one point. And it was like this whole talking part in the middle and it had a totally different rhythm and the, the, it was real, the melody was really bad and the chords were pretty bad. Um, I just thought it was cool. It had died a few times, and then right before I went to LA, I just like revived it with like a different sort of totally different vibe, and edited the words and figured out all the lyrics and what I wanted it to do. And uh, yeah, and then I was just like loved it, you know, and I was very happy to. And it was also nice to have like a like a beat, you know, the kind of beat I would normally really be scared of, but I felt like it would be nice to have sort of a whatever. So I don't know what kind of beat it is, like the Elton John kind of beat or something. Sort of a cheesy funk beat. You know, I wanted it to be like, I was imagining like the last song on like a 60s record, like a, like Oh Sweet Nothing or something like that, or like a, like a ba-boom, pop, ba-boom, but just like, just like a, or like the Joker, like Steve Miller, just that kind of beat. I uh, <laughs> just, just sort of a, the kind of beat that I used to hate when I was like in high school. Um, it just felt like it felt nice. Stars are everywhere. Come on, come on, come on, just take a look up there. They fill the darkest corners of the darkest air. And they go where satellites would never ever dare. And then suddenly, over there, I see the bear. It was originally just like a literal story about like, because there really is a bear around here. So I was just talking about that. Then I liked the idea of, you know, uh, it's hard to explain, but I guess I just like the idea of the bear being sort of a mythical thing or, or sort of a a fantasy kind of mysterious thing and then talking about it at the beginning of the song and then all sorts of stuff happens in the song and then at the end uh you you, you see the bear i like that concept it just took me a long time to figure out what what was going to go on between the introduction of the idea of the bear and the spotting of the bear at the very end of the song so yeah it, there are so many different versions of it like that song i barely survived but i'm so glad it did but yeah so it ended up being just sort of like my story i guess a bit you know, I guess it's about stories of my life and where I am now and fear of the future and where things are going. And I guess it's like a hopeful song or looking for whatever, signs or like mystery or thing, that kind of thing. But that's the, the feeling I was trying to get. When I was a young man, I carried my pack. Went down to the river and I brought a whale back. I tilted my crown and paraded through town But I lost all my dough at the track 
Carrying on the practice of borrowing and reconceptualizing that is present within traditional folk songs, the track Hiram Hollow is a tall tale number that sounds as if it could have come straight out of Harry Smith's anthology of American folk music. I shot a fox as he drank from the pond. I looked in his eyes as he met the beyond. I sat there and cried as my wife tanned his hide. Man, I still don't know which side I'm on. So if orange is the sunset, then red is the rise. I saw the ships coming from the shape of your eyes. I kissed your red lips as I boarded my ship. Maybe this time is my time to die. Green eyes, to my surprise. Oh, green eyes, to my surprise. You'll see me cry while beside you I lie, honey, that's how I'll tell you goodbye. So I tell the old stories. That's actually the name of the garbage dump up here. And I just love the name so much. I thought it was just such sort of a mysterious and beautiful name that uh, I had, I really wanted to use it. You know, it's kind of supposed to be like a sort of a hodgepodge of, you know, traditional American folk music, like Appalachian music, just that kind of stuff. And all the like early Woody Guthrie, like I think for the chorus melody is sort of, it's a lot like a Woody Guthrie song. I just kind of wrote it or, and I had the melody and I had some verses and I was like, yeah, but I can't do this because this is somebody, this is sort of parts of it are other people's melodies. I, I just didn't really understand what it was. And then I was like, well, why can't but I can do that if I want, so I was just like, I'm just going to do it. Yeah, I just sort of put words on it that they came to me really fast. I wanted to have some jokes in there, and I wanted to... I don't really know what it is. That's just that's kind of what one, one more experimental kind of song for me. Um, but I really love it, and it's my wife's favorite song. Yeah, that one's a little hard to explain, but it's kind of just... A, you know, like the opening line is from that Pogue song, the, the band played Waltzing Matilda. Uh, and there's uh, there's another echoes uh, echoes of that. there's just echoes of a lot of songs that I've that I've loved for for many years I think and help me Rhonda yeah I wanted to <laughs> yeah I have a shirt that says help me Rhonda on it so I I, I uh, yes that was definitely a, I want I like the idea of having that kind of song with the help me Rhonda reference. <laughs> Sit here on the stair while she dries the silverware. The children watch TV with Easter ribbons in their hair. Man, that's the best part of the tune when the flutes chase the bassoon. But the glow from the big city pulls my eye down from the moon. And everyone is laughing. But everyone is scared The singer died on a Tuesday night Gasping for air The minor key track, Easter, projects a sense of unease and uncertainty through both its lyrics and musical backing communicated most effectively by O'Brien's emotive lap steel parts and Martin's ominous bass playing. 
I tried to do like the opposite of what I normally I would just try to make it smooth and but I, I wanted to, I like the boom boom to sort of uh, I don't know just I, I tried to do the opposite of what I'd normally do and I, and I ended up really liking it. I've been waiting for the dark but I'm waiting I hear the under siren singing. That's sort of like a, I guess that that's about like early in the pandemic, and that was just kind of like I guess it's just kind of a lot of fear, you know. It was very scary, and like I guess it's about feeling sort of ill-equipped, you know, uh, and you know just being scared and feeling ill-equipped, essentially, having family that you're looking after and something very scary that you're not accustomed to is happening and but that's kind of what it's about it's just sort of anxiety and and fear just growing up in the band it's you know it's like you're kind of stuck in childhood for so long because you're not doing the things regular adults do so you know if you get out of that in, in like at the age of whatever 39 you feel a little bit unprepared for for the world you know in in some ways it was her, she was the one who told me to try to run away to the city where the lights are twinkling all night long and there's money in the streets when you're young but it was easy for her to say for she was not my mother. As we near the end of the record, we get old world elegance in the track, Not My Mother. So I packed my bag so tight And I left my friends on a warm August night And the wind was in my hair as the building swayed And she told me the world would be mine someday If I trusted her to lead the way but it was easy for her to say, for she... That one actually was very much in the same style as the other one. It was like a low sort of finger pick thing. I, I guess it was my wife who heard it. She was like, it just sounds too sad. She was like, I just can't get into it. It's just too dreary sound. It did sound very dreary. It was really slow and sad. And also some of the words were, were different. Uh, and so I, I had sort of given up on it. Then I always really liked something about it. So I, I thought, you know, I, in, in my other records, like on my kids' records, I did that rhythm it's called a Tarantella, which is boom, 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 And so I thought maybe I would just try doing, doing something that had a little bit of a more friendly, sort of a dopey vibe underneath it. But I'll do it super slow, which would give it a, just to give it a little rhythm and see if that brought the song to life. And and it did so, and, and I changed some of the words to suit it a bit, uh, and so yeah, that's really how it came together. That one's hard to explain too, you know. I guess it's about like it's had a lot of different things, uh, but I guess it's about like sort of. I guess it's about like just tr trusting the wrong voices, like things that you tell yourself and things that other people tell you. I guess is the one sentence synopsis of what, in essence, I'm talking about. I, you know, I, there's. There's a lot of stuff in there that I hope people can respond to. And when she finally left, she left me 
The only thing she could The statuette with a heart made out of wood And I keep it on my piano And it listens as I play And sometimes I hear between the notes Words of judgment and decay But then they just fade away They were easy for her to say For she was not my mother beautiful and high up in that West Virginia sky oh and so scared was I the album's penultimate track the crow symbolizes love features the great Quentin Stoltzfus of Mazarin and light heat providing harmony vocals to one of the record's fullest arrangements and it is through this arrangement as well as its affecting lyrics about family, love, and the passage of time, that a sense of warmth emanates throughout. And by the way, this is my favorite song on the record. I've yet to be able to get through it without getting a little misty-eyed and predict that it will probably be this way for a while. And when the crow left again I didn't let my sadness show But I stayed out all night drinking Wondering where the hell would she go All but all I found Is that the crow don't come round When you don't love your own self, you know So many years passed by Lines formed around my eye Lord, I thought the crow had died Yeah, that's just sort of like about growing up, I guess, and about like getting lost and like trying to put things together and then sort of getting lucky and and things come together in in certain parts of your life. You know, like, it's like, again, just like it's like hiding behind like animal, animal themes is for some reason a trick that I don't mean to do. I never thought I would do, but I sort of keep doing that. I guess I like the clunkiness of a crow. I you know, it's like the ugliness and just the commonness of a crow. I think is why, why I wanted it to be a crow. You know, that one actually, I just had a title. That's one of like that. Usually doesn't work that way, but with that one, I just had the title. I don't know why I thought of that title. The crow symbolized love. I just kind of like that title. Uh, even I don't know honestly where it came from, but then I like the idea of like 
I, I guess on this record more than other records, I guess there's there's, there's stuff that's less direct. You know, I think there's a, there's things that represent other things and like more maybe more sort of metaphors and things like that in the, in the lyrics. So. Whereas usually I'll, it's what I sing about, the lyrics are always very, very direct. Um, so I like the idea of having sort of a, a metaphor, but then in the title of the song, just sort of giving giving it giving it away. I don't, I don't know why, that just sort of appealed to me. I guess it was just sort of like a padding to be able to write about love, adding one layer of distance so you could write about it. That song took a bunch of different forms. It, it was like... Yeah, it had a very different style. I can't remember what the original style was, but it was a lot slower, and I think it had a lot more verses. And yeah, it was it was just it was slower and longer. Um, and then I had that sort of guitar part, which is and, and very similar to other guitar parts on the record, especially like the Hunters in the Snow song. Uh, and I always just liked that very simple little riff. Uh, so I was just like, maybe I'll try it with that. And so I did that, and it just sort of came together came together very nicely. Uh, and yeah, I'm actually playing drums, like those just recorded in my living room. Yeah, I had the drums redone in, in LA when I was out there, but for some reason it didn't sit right. And so I just, I just ended up keeping my, my sort of scrappy drums, which is like just my sort of practice take drums. I just sort of liked them. These days, when I mic drums myself, I just use whatever, one mic. I use the vocal mic that I'm singing into and just turn, point it towards the drums. And I find that it makes it, it just, it's as so much as the drums, it's not that big a deal. The, the drum sound like to me at least you know i i, I like a I like a scrappy drum sound I, I, I whatever emotionally respond to it much more than to pristine beautifully recorded drums i mean i do love beautifully recorded drums sometimes but like but the stuff that i really love like i don't know that uh, having a real super clean high budget drum sound never never really turns me on very much there was so much like in recording in the nineties and stuff like that with like fire eater. And even in Walkman, you, you go into record and like you spend the whole like two days or more just sitting there, miking the drums, every hitting, every Tom, like, it's just like exhausting when it comes time to mixing. We're just like, okay, I, I, that all sounds terrible. We just want to use the room mic. You know, the room mic sounds good. It sounds, it sounds like the, the, the drummer in the room. So, I, you know, but still, for some reason, we can never put our foot down and be like, let's not mic all the fucking drums. Let's just use the room mic. Let's just do it casually. trying to find my way to that sacred and hallowed hall where light comes in and light divides and I align the circular time 
The album ends with The Song Is Never Done, a song about the never-ending pursuit of creative endeavors against the backdrop of middle-aged concerns. It's the perfect closer to this record, and also speaks to one of its strengths, which is its track sequence. Each song complements the other, and creates the ideal flow for these songs to be taken in as a whole. This is especially true of having the song is never done follow the crow symbolizes love the pairing of these two tracks create quite an emotional gut punch it's funny the bear and this one were both written as closers i feel like it does sort of talk about a lot of stuff that i talk about in the, in the whole record and yeah it felt like a nice a nice conclusion yeah i like that being sort of the destination for the record just because it's about like whatever about writing songs and about like what the hell what the hell the point of it all is and what the hell, I don't know. I do like the, the words in that one. The drum track, I recorded it at Aaron Desner from The National, his studio. It was when I was working with Matt Berninger and we were like writing, it was like a writing session. I was there for a few days and I got up early and just, because re- I was sleeping in the studio so I, and I got up early and recorded piano and drum stuff just to have around. And so I just recorded a drum track at, temp- at a tempo that I needed and uh, I always liked the sound of it. So I actually played the whole song to that drum track. I like how they don't do anything in the whole song, but uh, I just like that they uh, just kind of sit there. For the album art, Martin uses a painting by New Hampshire-based artist Hollis Heikamer. I found her through, uh, I you know, honestly can't remember exactly how I found her. There's this, it, there's this podcast called the Art Grind podcast that I really love. Uh, and I, I guess I heard her and her husband. I knew her husband's art. He's this great painter. Uh, and, uh, and they were on this podcast together. And I thought they were both so interesting. So I just looked her up and I just looked at her paintings. I, was, yeah, I just liked every single one of them and I liked everything about them. I guess I was in sort of in the mode of trying to figure out an album cover and I, I wanted it to be abstract, I guess. Uh, yeah. Or when I, I guess when I saw her paintings, I, I, I liked that they were abstract and I liked that there was a, I liked the idea of having a, an abstract sort of image on the cover. Cause I feel like, I don't know, for me at least this album feels more abstract than other things that I've done just because I, I feel like other records I've made are, are so uh, so direct. Maybe not always, but like I think a lot of what I do is very, lyrically is very direct. I just like how it felt mysterious, and uh, I don't know, just something about the feeling of it felt very appropriate for this, the the album. Uh, and I especially liked it when I thought of calling the album "The Bear." I don't know, it just felt right to me. Just the combination. I wrote to her and uh, sent her. No, I didn't send her any music. I wrote to her, and, and she wrote back a few days later saying she had looked me up. And listen to my stuff and that she felt like she already knew me, which I thought was so nice from listening to my stuff. She said that, that I was welcome to use it. So we're, we're sort of like pen pals. I mean, or maybe not pen pals, but we've corresponded a bunch. And she's, she's very nice and supportive. And I sent her the record and she sent me a really nice note about it. Like all of Martin's solo work, The Bear would be released through his own imprint, 
Ilflotant Music. And now will the record finally be an out into the world. Martin, ever the prolific songwriter, is already looking ahead to his next project. I do it myself. I really like to own my own stuff. Like after years of being in bands and stuff, I, you know, and whenever money came in, it was impossible to actually access it as one of the five members of the band who it was just it's hard because we, we didn't own any of our stuff we still don't own the walkman stuff you know we own some of it i guess so yeah I, I like to own my own stuff so you know i think the the bear will i mean hopefully i'll get some press i, I don't know I, i'm not going to go on tour i think maybe we talked about that I, I might do like a couple shows but i'm not dying to honestly i'll do everything in my power my limited powers to get people to listen to it and then we'll see what happens uh, I'm already sort of thinking about the next, you know, I really make a living most of my kid stuff and my, uh, my commercial stuff. So, you know, I, I can already feel myself, not just because it's, it's, an, it's an easier way to make a living, but it is nice to swing back and forth between the two. And I, I can already see myself wanting to swing back towards doing something that's more, I don't know, like, a, I guess I have a longing to make like a really great kid record or again or like a kid some something like a show or something i just don't know um, but I, that's what i'm thinking about now on his track i went alone on a solo australian tour from 2018's reminisce bar and grill martin carries on a conversation with a sort of doo-wop version of a greek chorus and as the song nears its end the chorus asks him if he likes to be alone and if it gives him time to think to which Martin replies yes to both, and then goes on to list the things that he thinks about when he is alone. On the bear, Martin explores this idea further, producing a collection of songs all about the act of being alone with one's own thoughts and memories, reflecting on what it means to create, to love, and to be loved. I really love it. I'm very proud of it. Um, You know, I, I sort of have dabbled with like the kid thing and like the writing more whimsical stuff and having sort of emotional stuff hidden in there and then having more serious stuff and having it accompanied by sort of more whimsical stuff i really just wanted to do something that was as fully on the you know adult side the way that i guess the way that i talk to my friends or the way that i talk to other adults uh it's fully on that side as the as like whatever my we're all young together was on the kids side of where it would just sort of i guess think the way that i talk to kids i feel like i i hadn't really fully done that so i wanted to make i guess i did it a bit with reminisce bar and grill but i, I just really wanted it to be a quiet you know storytelling record about adult topics that i you know think about and, and talk about a lot i'm happy with how it came out i it was kind of a tall order, and I, I almost wimped out about a million times, jumping back into doing like a comedy songs or whatever. But I'm glad I, I pushed through. It's not going to be like on an iPhone commercial or anything like that, which is usually how I, I survive. Um, so I, I imagine I'm going to have to retreat to doing uh, my old tricks pretty soon. But I am very happy I made it. I'm proud of it. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Walter Martin for speaking with me about this very special record. You can buy and stream The Bear and more from Martin on the various streaming platforms or at waltermartinmusic.com. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. 
You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.